Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you've joined us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And Jim, I think most of us uh, got this feeling in the pit of our stomachs yesterday when we got the news that the jury had reached a verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial and that there would be a verdict later in the late afternoon, early evening, depending on what part of the country you're in. And we all just started wondering, what's the verdict going to be? How are people there going to react to the verdict? And a lot of people saying, I hope justice is done and I really hope peace reigns in the streets this evening and beyond in Minneapolis. And by most accounts, I think, Jim, that's exactly what we got. Uh, There's obviously people disagreeing about what the proper verdict should have been. Maybe not that there should have been a conviction. I think just about everybody probably agrees with that. Some thought maybe second-degree murder could have been a bit too far, but there is a craven indifference portion for second-degree murder in Minnesota. So he's guilty on all counts. Second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and uh, manslaughter. And given how Everyone was pretty much universally horrified last year before we got into the protests in the streets, before we got into everything getting politicized. It's about the most open and shut case of people just seeing that video last year and saying, that's not right. There has to be consequences for this. The jury saw that. The jury came to its verdict. And we did not have violence in the streets. We'll get to some of the reactions to that verdict, which were definitely not helpful a little bit later in the podcast today. But in terms of the system working as it's supposed to, Maxine Waters notwithstanding, uh, and also the the reaction of the people. There were a lot of folks out there saying they're going to, the the city's going to burn no matter what the verdict is. They didn't. Uh, The city did not burn. So uh, it's about as good of a scenario as we could have had in terms of peace in the streets last night. Yeah. um, Kind of an interesting experience as we were, got word that the jury had reached a decision, they'd reached a verdict. Uh, waiting for them to come back into the courtroom and hear what that verdict was. Um, Greg, you and I are around the same age, and I heard from some of my younger colleagues at National Review, well, you know, is this what it was like during the OJ verdict? And it was kind of striking to me. I realized I work with people who either weren't born <laughs> you know, when, <laughs> during the OJ verdict or were too young to remember that. And I think it's a little bit of apples and oranges. Uh, it was pre-internet era. I think you, I think CNN and Court TV were kind of the two big uh, uh, factors in this. It was not really, uh, there was no Twitter or social media where people could instantly vent out their thoughts on all this. But it did seem kind of reminiscent of that. And I do think that if you were alive then, and if you were of the opinion that uh, O.J. Simpson was guilty of double murder, and a lot of people who watched the uh, trial came away with that conclusion. And oh, it's worth remembering when that whole process began, people liked O.J. Simpson. Right. People oh, loved yeah. him from from you know the the Hertz commercials and his football career and the Naked Gun movies. So the idea that this guy had could have possibly killed his wife and another random waiter or somebody who was returning glasses or something like that, um, it was just you know like uh, I think most people instinctively, no, no, O.J. couldn't have done that. And then they heard the 911 call and they heard, saw the, the layout of the case. And all of a sudden people came, oh, okay, maybe it, maybe he did do it. And then eventually by the time it came around, people who'd watched at home had you know, been convinced of his guilt, but the jury had not. And in fact, the jury did buy into the argument of OJ's lawyers that the Los Angeles Police Department and the entire criminal justice system had been so um, untrustworthy in their handling of every aspect of the case that you simply couldn't do it. And we've had this discussion about jury nullification. 
I mentioned all this stuff just because I as kind of as a prelude to the fact that I think if you lived through that, you just don't take jury decisions for granted in any set of circumstances. Maybe some people felt the same way about the George Zimmerman trial or Casey Anthony or any one of these big high profile trials we've had since then. But this kind of sense of like, well, we don't know what's going to happen in that jury room. We don't know if there'll be a hung jury. We don't know if there'll be some sort of holdout. You just, you know, things that may seem obvious to you watching news coverage of the trial may not seem so obvious to the, uh, the people on the jury who are watching it. In this case, so I think there were a lot of people who were, you know, metaphorically holding their breath and fearing what if they come away and, you know, uh, and say, this is not, I don't, I don't believe it. Uh, you know, this fear of, oh, Derek Chauvin did nothing wrong. I mean, it's hard to believe anybody could possibly come to that conclusion having watched that video, but they, you know, they did, uh, they, you know, it's always in that realm of possibility, came back guilty on all counts. If you were primed to riot, <laughs> if you were primed to loot, if you were primed to have some sort of, you know, violent and destructive frenzy, you had no good reason. You had no just, not, not that there's any really good reason, but your idea of like, oh, ah, it's, it's, it would turn into the akin of, you know, rioting because your team won the Super Bowl or, or World Series or something like that. You, there really isn't a good justification for that sort of thing. Um, and that's there that had not occurred. And I heard a lot of people saying, eh, they're going to riot either way. It doesn't really matter. Well, they didn't. And I think that so you know, maybe this is kind of a lesson for a lot of us. Um, listeners of this podcast know I can be as cynical as anybody. Uh, maybe we shouldn't always expect the worst from other people. Maybe we shouldn't uh, always assume that the worst case scenario will come to pass and that people will disappoint us. Um, and kind of like one last kind of aspect of this. I, look, I, in the morning jolt, I tried to lay out uh, the assessment of my distinguished colleague, Andy McCarthy, uh, about the likelihood of this being overturned on appeals. It, it's reasonable to, to ask whether, um, I think it was a fair trial, but I think you can say, did outside factors influence the jury? I don't think it's proven, but I think it's reasonable to ask that question. And this is the sort of thing the appeals process is designed to handle. Um, I, I do also kind of think it's an interesting observation uh, and probably probably a useful thing to keep in mind when we talk about the Derek Chauvin case versus other cases of police brutality. This was not a circumstance in which police were involved in a shooting that they had to make in a split second. Uh, this was not the sort of thing, you know, you know, my colleague Dan McLaughlin pointed out that juries usually give cops a lot of leeway about, you know, shootings that are done in a, a response to a violence, uh, to a, a report of shots fired or something like that, where you have to make a, a split second decision. This was not the case in George Floyd. There was not an indication, but this was a split second thing. This went on for minutes and minutes and minutes. And at one point they say they don't have a pulse. And at that point, it seems reasonable to conclude that a man who does not have a pulse is not a threat to you any longer. And thus there's no reason to keep him in that position. So um, look, I think justice was done or at least the first step of justice is done. I think, you know, Derek Chauvin will attempt to use the appeals process as is his right and they should listen to his arguments on that. Uh, and as the judge warned, it is not inconceivable that some future judge could say, ah, you know what? That comment from Maxine Waters could be seen as intimidating the jury, the threats of rioting. I'm declaring a mistrial and you got to start this over again. I don't think it'll happen. Uh, Andy McCarthy doesn't think it'll happen either, but certainly I don't think it can be ruled out. But I think all things considered, yesterday played out about as well as we possibly could have hoped for, Greg. 
No, I think that's right. And I read somewhere, it might have been hot air, that uh, the Minnesota Supreme Court is going to take up whether a second-degree murder ought to include craven indifference and not need an intent to kill. Uh, but nonetheless, that's the law right now, and that's where the jury came down on that. I don't, uh, I don't think that uh, that's likely to change uh, the results in this case either. But uh, as we get closer and closer to our second martini, Jim, you, you almost got this feeling like, who's going to ruin this? And uh, we'll tell you who ruined it in just a moment, or at least uh, didn't help as usual. But uh, let's pause for a moment and talk about the help your business can get from Bambi, because when running a business, HR issues can be a real problem. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and look, HR manager salaries, they're not cheap. They're an average of $70,000 a year. But the good news is, is that Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small businesses. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day to day. And once again, all for just $99 a month. Month to month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. That's fantastic news. And Jim, I know there's new ways to do math now, but I'm still pretty sure that $99 a month for 12 months is quite a bit cheaper than $70,000 over that same time. But look, you didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. That's obvious. So let Bambi help and get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash martini right now to schedule your free HR audit. Again, Bambi.com slash martini. Spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash martini. All right, Jim. Democrats rushing to the microphones to try and take a victory lap, but ending up making things worse and be clowning themselves. Uh, there was no shortage of those yesterday, including from the very top echelons of the Democratic Party. Uh, the first one I saw that got a lot of uh, negative blowback, and rightly so, was this comment from Nancy Pelosi outside the Capitol thanking George Floyd for sacrificing his life. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice, for being there to call out to your mom. How, how heartbreaking was that? Call out for your mom. I can't breathe. But because of you and because of thousands, millions of people around the world who came out for justice, your name will always be synonymous with justice. Not to be outdone, the president and vice president not simply content to say that they think that the jury reached the right verdict. I mean, Biden was talking about what he thought the verdict should be even before the jury came back in uh, yesterday. And so Kamala Harris gets up there first and talks about all sorts of systemic racism and uh, how it's gone on through the ages. And then Biden gets up there and parrots the exact same thing. Here's how he said it. It was a murder in the full light of day, and it ripped the blinders off for the whole world to see the systemic racism the vice president just referred to. The systemic racism is a stain on our nation's soul. <clears throat> the knee on the neck of justice for black Americans. Profound fear and trauma. The pain, the exhaustion that black and brown Americans experience every single day. So, Jim, this was a case of obviously 
police, uh, you know, with the knee on the neck of uh, George Floyd. I think the prosecution made a pretty compelling case that he was guilty of that. I didn't follow the case super closely, so I don't know how much the prosecution injected race into it based on the reports I read. It didn't seem like much. They were just dealing with the facts of the case. But uh, with this conviction, you've got uh, Biden and Harris in particular and others out there saying, well, there you go. We've been telling you all along that America is basically a systemically racist country with this deep, dark stain. And so uh, we're all guilty here. It's just disgusting. Yeah. So early in the week, uh, it was Axios listed China, Russia, and Iran as three blinking red lights of you know potential crises for the Biden administration. And I said, yeah, those, I agree with that, but I think there's a lot more than just three. And I laid them out. And a big one was policing. And first and foremost, you know, there was both a short-term problem and a long-term problem on this front. The short-term problem was, as of Monday morning, we didn't know, you know when the Derek Chauvin verdict was going to come in. We didn't know what that verdict was going to be. And so the possibility of either, you know, uh, not guilty on all three charges or guilty on one, but not on the others or something. And the idea of uh, great public outrage and resulting riots and looting and violence and all that was really a possibility as of a couple of days ago. Jury came back the way they with the decision they did. And we, we dodged that bullet. We don't have to worry about that. Um, somebody when I wrote that pointed out to me that, well, you know, Jim, there was rioting in Portland last night. Um, yeah, that's that's because it's Portland. Uh, it's about it's kind of like rain. It just kind of happens there, day in, day out, night in, night out, over in Portland. I'm being somewhat facetious, but I think it's safe to say that uh, um, Portland is now largely lost to Antifa, and they will uh, they only riot in days ending with a Y. Um, but by and large, so if you're Biden, like this was good news. This was really good news. You dodged a bullet because here's the thing: the last thing you wanted was some sort of great uh, racial strife in the country, and you know. Uh, kind of a rerun of all the issues that came up over Ferguson and then having president, you ain't black, being coming out and trying to heal the waters and all that kind of stuff. I don't think uh, Biden would excel in that role. He really didn't excel in that role during 2020. And I think he just kind of survived it in that summer. I think, you know, basically there was enough issues with what President Trump was doing that there wasn't a ton of scrutiny of, what are you, a junkie? You know, and all these other uh, Biden-esque outbursts and such. On Nancy Pelosi... Greg, is it safe to say this is her biggest mistake on race-related issues since she got half the leadership of the Democratic caucus in the House to dress up like a Wakandan chess set? I think that was that's probably the last time that uh, she had a cringe moment of this magnitude, yes. So I'm going to make an observation. You, you, you know, Throughout the Trump years, I will contend that there was a strong contingent of people who, no matter what Trump did, would say, oh, no, this is... You don't, it only looks like a mistake. It only looks like he screwed up. You don't understand this is part of the plan. He's playing three-level chess and you can't even grasp it. You can't even see. He's got plans within plans, wheels within wheels, gears turn, you know. And I think it's now safe to say, no, <laughs> there was no you know, grand master plan working behind the scenes and, you know, Trump was the wild mastermind or something like that. And you could probably find this mentality, certainly at, you know, One American Network and Newsmax and probably some corners of Fox News. But there's a very similar philosophy and attitude at work towards Nancy Pelosi, except her fan base is heavily amongst the national mainstream media reporters who cover Capitol Hill. There is this ironclad myth of Nancy Pelosi as this grandmaster strategist who is always thinking one step ahead of everything else and who uh, rules her caucus with an iron fist and who knows where all the bodies are buried. And she's the ultimate crafty leader on Capitol Hill. And I just don't see it. 
And not only that, even if you wanted to grant that she's got some sort of strategic, you know, uh, impressive strategic mind, which I dispute strongly, I don't think you can say she's got good political instincts in the slightest. I would look point to basically all of 2020 for that, for everything from the uh, all kinds of comments. I said the Wakandan chess set, ridiculous. But this one yesterday, where she said, thanking George Floyd for dying for justice. Greg, he really didn't have a choice in the matter. Now, did he? That wasn't voluntary. Yeah, you know, it was kind of a, I, I, you know, and she just is so ham-handed, ham-fisted, so clumsy about this. I just cannot understand how she has this reputation for this. I think she's getting up there in years. I think she's not as sharp as she used to be. I don't think it's senility or Alzheimer's. I think she just blurts out words that come, you know, not all that much like different from Biden. Maybe not all that different from Trump. Maybe not all that different from a whole bunch of figures in our political firmament who are getting up there in years. Maxine Waters turns 83 this year, folks. Maybe it's time for a youth movement in our political leadership. And then again, you know, Greg, I just pointed out that I work with coworkers who don't remember <laughs> the O.J. Simpson trial. That also dawned on me when I you know, was really starting. I was like, well, you don't remember that? Greg, it has dawned on me that I have coworkers who are closer in age to my 11-year-old younger son than they are to me. <laughs> it's almost a generational difference now. So now that I've probably made you and everyone else feel old, I'm just going to uh, sit in the corner in my rocking chair and tell kids to get off my lawn. <laughs> Well, the only problem with the youth movement among the Democrats is you get the squad. But on the OJ front, uh, it was fascinating because, of course, uh, like you said before, you know, when when the the murders happened, you know, most people had a very positive view of OJ for all the for all the reasons you mentioned. And then as time went on, you know, dealing with interns o- over the summers, it's funny to watch what happened because uh, eventually you run into people who were too young to remember OJ as the hero. So OJ's o- only been the murderer, and then uh, and so I'm like, okay, I can adjust to that fact. These people are younger; they don't they don't remember 1994, 1995, and certainly his image before that. And then we had interns at the time that OJ got paroled from his conviction in Nevada. And so like, oh, we got to watch uh, to see if OJ actually gets paroled here today. I was expecting them to once again say, oh, uh, he still got away with murder. But no, the interns were saying, who's OJ Simpson? Oh my Because he had been in prison so long from the Nevada situation that, uh, you know, he was behind bars for what, close to 10 years, eight, nine years or something. Oh, it was and- a lot of, it was about as hard a sentence as they could give him for that. And a lot of people saw that as the makeup call for the, uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So when he got sent away, they were so young. So whatever it is, eight, nine, ten years later, they're college interns. They had no frame of reference on O.J. Simpson. And yeah, I, I just went and looked for my uh, my Geritol, I guess. But uh, for those of you who are too young to, to remember that, like, Greg, I was trying to describe this to our, our younger employees. The O.J. Simpson trial dominated the news cycle of 1994, 1995 on a level probably comparable to the war on terror in that first year after 9-11, and maybe like the pandemic last year. That's probably this the level of just nonstop day after day. So, like, as, far, as far as I remember, and I was in college at the time, um, the O.J. Simpson story was the news story for the better part of a year. It's what all the you know late night comics were joking about. It was on the evening news. It was in the newspaper every day. It was the story. And... Um, yeah, so now it's utterly forgotten, a gener- you know, close to a generation later. It's incredible. But, you know, that you also got these channels with the old game shows, and one of them was uh, Family Feud that I just dipped in for a little bit the other day. And it's like, name a uh, popular sports hero. And everybody's got, you know, it's from like the late 70s, early 80s. So it's like Roger Staubach and Terry Bradshaw, Muhammad Ali, and, and people like that. And then, 
at the end of Family Feud, you know, if nobody gets it right, they reveal the rest of the answers on the survey and the flips over OJ Simpson. And you're just like, man, it's a whole different world. Amazing. All right. Well, let's talk about something happier than OJ. And that is my slippers. Uh, two years in development to uh, create these slippers of the highest quality and comfort. And right now, thanks to the code we give you here, the promo code Martini, 40% off at MyPillow.com. My slippers are durable. You can wear them all day. They're designed to be worn indoors and outdoors. They have beautiful leather suede with cozy faux fur linings and a sole that can work indoors and outdoors. They have moccasin or slip-on style. They're available in a variety of colors and they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. They also come with a three-tier cushioning system, which I love. In fact, my feet are enjoying that three-tier cushioning system right now. It includes the MyPillow patented fill, the Comfort Memory Foam, and the patented Impact Gel. And you put them all together, let me just tell you, they work. For a limited time, MyPillow is offering 40% off my slippers. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square. Enter the promo code MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. And while you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and the MyPillow towel sets. You can... Only save that 40% though on the new My Slippers with the promo code Martini. So please don't forget that. Call 800 874 0104 or visit mypillow.com today. All right, Jim, let's move away from uh, police controversies as we enter our crazy martini now here. And let's move to everyone's favorite topic three and a half years before a presidential election. Who might run in 2024? Uh, this is crazy because it's one of those times of. Who besides you thinks this is a good idea? But this is Axios. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is seriously considering running for president in 2024, according to three people familiar with his thinking. While Christie isn't saying anything publicly about his thinking, other than saying he's not ruling it out, people close to him have an early sense of the rationale and outlines of a potential candidacy. Here's the rationale, Jim. He has executive experience, he has executive experience and he's run a presidential campaign before. That's his apparent advantage over Ron DeSantis uh, because he obviously has executive experience but hasn't run a presidential campaign yet. He also could run on a reputation for toughness that, quote, appeals to Trump's base minus the former president's recklessness. So, uh, Jim, I feel like Chris Christie is trying to find a DeLorean that'll take him back to 2012 when he probably had his best chance to uh, make a run for president. 2016 didn't work out unless his whole goal was to take out Marco Rubio. And so now 2024 is rolling around. He'll have been out of office quite a while by then. And I'm just not sure that people who love Trump, people who don't like Trump, really have much demand for Chris Christie. Yeah. Now, I, before we go any further, I'm going to observe the fact that our last three presidents are named Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and Barack Obama should be very clear evidence that just about anything is possible in American politics. And, you, know, <laughs> you can't simply, oh, that person could never get elected president. Well, clearly, you know, the, the range of possibilities for someone who ends up being the uh, last man standing at the end of this process are a little broader than we think they are. But that having been said, come on, <laughs> Chris Christie. Uh, I think that the single biggest problem for him is that I suspect the, the Trump fan base will see him as disloyal because he obviously wasn't afraid to criticize Trump quite a bit, particularly towards the end of Trump's presidency. And I think the anti-Trumpers will look at Chris Christie and remember that he was the guy who endorsed him at a really key moment in the 2016 
uh, Republican presidential primary. I don't think that single-handedly delivered the nomination to him, but I think it was, you know, I, I think it was a contributing factor. And that if Christie had thrown his weight, that is not a, a joke at his expense. Uh, if he had thrown his support behind one of the other figures, it might have at least made it a more you know competitive race and strengthened one of those. And in the end, I mean, you know, Chris Christie looked at Donald Trump and said, "Oh yeah, this is a guy who I can I'm, I'm okay with supporting." And I suspect he looked at Trump and said, "Oh yeah, if I support him, there's a good chance I'll end up being Attorney General." Little did he know that his uh, uh, prosecution of Jared Kushner's father would have far-reaching consequences. But I just kind of see his Christie as being you know, neither fish nor fowl. Uh, he's not in either one of those worlds. And I don't think you could say, oh, thus he has appeal to both of them. He'll have been out of office since, uh, let's see, he was elected. Oh, uh, nine, right? So oh, nine reelected 23. So he's been out of office since 2017. Yeah. And, you know, he's been a commentator for ABC News. I, I guess he's pretty good at that. I think actually, I, I give him a little credit for being fairly blunt and calling him as he sees him regarding Trump. But I don't think that necessarily makes people turn around and say, ah, yeah, this, here's the guy who, you know, who I definitely think should be the next president or something. Uh, I, I know. And I think it's very interesting, um, the comparison to DeSantis and the argument that maybe DeSantis in 2021 is roughly equivalent to where Christie was in 2009, 2010 or something like that. The tough guy, um, the guy who was conservative, the guy who was really down to earth, sometimes kind of funny, the guy who took absolutely no grief from the media. That was one of the big parts of, of Christie's shtick too. Um, and Republicans who for obvious reasons have big you know, axes to grind and big uh, objections to the way the media covers things. Love it when a, a Republican governor puts uh, the media in their place and calls them out on dishonest reporting, calls them out on spin, calls them out on getting stuff wrong. I mean, that, yeah, this is, I just don't know what, what the natural Chris Christie constituency is out there, uh, unless like, you know, Trump sees him as a loyal guy and decides to endorse him or something like that. Um, you know, he's, he's had his moment in the spotlight. It's long since done. And when he says you know, that line about, oh, well, he's run before, you know, in 2016, Rick Santorum had run before. He actually won Iowa, and then he did not win Iowa the second time. Mike Huckabee had run before. He too had won Iowa, and he did not win. Like, running a second time, yeah, you, you have a better sense of what you're in for. You're probably less likely to get blindsided. That's probably a legitimate thing for somebody like DeSantis to think about. Everybody who runs for president thinks they're ready for it, thinks they, oh, I've, I've dealt with, you know, some really tough criticism back in my statehouse press. Yeah, sorry, pal. It's nothing like the scrutiny of a national political campaign and the profiles and the digging into your background and the, you know, um, looking into your, your school records, old classmates, old friends. You ever had any marital issues? That's probably going to come out. Ever had any financial troubles? They're probably going to come out. Somewhere in the back, you can probably hear uh, Bill Clinton say, and don't forget about the land deals. Um, you know, like that's uh, run of a president's hard. So if you're Ron DeSantis, you, you probably want to make sure you're ready for it. But uh, also let's remember, I don't think Chris Christie really amounted to much in 20, in a very crowded field no. in 2016. So why he would believe that, you know, eight years later, the whole country would be clamoring for him. Um, just, just not convincing. Uh, but the other thing is the also possibility that Chris Christie just likes being a big shot. No pun, again, no pun intended. And if you're, you know, why say you're not running for president? As long as you're a possible running for president, everyone will kind of lean forward in every speech you give, wondering if you're uh, going to announce a bit. 
No, that's right. But yeah, I mean, unless they radically change the schedule, where does Chris Christie do well? He's, he's not going to play well in Iowa. He put a lot of uh, emphasis on New Hampshire in 2016. It didn't do well at all. Uh, South Carolina, Florida, Super Tuesday states. Uh, and then you're running out of time. So I'm not sure where he thinks his uh, big breakthrough comes uh, in. But Chris Christie is uh, one of the better governors of New Jersey uh, in our lifetime. And, and and the key, of course, that we've learned over time is that uh, either your first or last name has to be Christie to be elected governor as a Republican in New Jersey. So. <laughs> uh, oh, wait, Tom Keene was in there. Tom Keene, yeah, back in the... All right, there you go. All right, yeah, so we, in, you know... Back in the 80s, yeah. And yeah. arguably better than both uh, Christy Todd Whitman and Chris Christie. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people who would agree with that. Some of us remember the hug, but anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah, you want to know what happened in 2016? That's exactly right. Good, good memory, Jim. All right, all right. Jim, we've made it through today. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Get us on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday, and please join us on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit danaradio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.